Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2209 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. We are continuing our series of messages I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week six of a nine-week series titled, What Does God Want? This series reveals that God desires us to be part of His family as His image bearers. I pray that there will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. As last week, we continued our series with the overall theme, which is to answer the question, what does God want? The answer we discovered over the past five weeks is that God wants you, and he wants everyone who will ever live. In other words, God wanted a human family. God wants co-workers to take care of the creation that he made specifically for them. God wants you to know who you are and why your life has value to him. He loves you and desires that you would also love him. So in last week's message, we explored God pursues his family. And that was through the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And this week, we're going to extend that thought to see how God is with his family forever, throughout all eternity, and maybe just get a glimpse of what eternity will be like for us. Now, I ended last week's message with a firm grasp of some obvious points. Christ is risen, and all those who put trust in what he did on the cross and his resurrection as their only means of salvation will have everlasting life. But while we are already members of God's kingdom, as we're told in Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, the kingdom has not yet fully come in its fullness and finality. It's already, but not yet complete. The same is true about the defeat and the destruction of what we refer to as Satan or the devil or their various fallen sons of God. Their destruction is in process, but it's not yet complete, not yet realized. The Satan, the devil, the evil ones have no claim, no ownership, no power of death over any member of God's, those who are members of God's kingdom. We belong to God through Jesus Christ, and Jesus conquered death that we might have everlasting life. He did that when he was resurrected, and then he ascended back to heaven so that his Holy Spirit would come and indwell each of us as a foretaste of what the kingdom of God would become. We belong to Jesus Christ because he conquered death to give us everlasting life with him and our Father. I want to read a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 through 49. It is the same way with the resurrection from the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, and they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. And the scriptures tells us, the first man, Adam, became a living person, but the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body, then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like the earthly man, and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. And just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. 
the verse we don't often read, but it tells us about our current own life and the life that we will become. And while this is terrific, we must remember that while we're still here on earth, the evil adversaries are influencing those who have not put their trust in God, who have not accepted and become citizens in God's kingdom. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2 tells us, You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. On earth, the evil ones are those entities at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. We see that throughout our world. But it's been since the beginning of time. Those who refuse God are then leave themselves open to be controlled by those powers of evil. Likewise, the powers of darkness, they have been dethroned. When Christ came and he was buried, resurrected, and ascended to heaven, he dethroned those evil powers that had dominion on the earth, but they've not yet surrendered. They want to take back their thrones. They resist, but they're fighting a losing battle. Every person who embraces salvation that God offers through Jesus Christ are no longer under those evil powers. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. So as the kingdom of God grows in this world, by necessity, the kingdom of the evil darkness is beginning to diminish. Now it's easy for us to get caught up in the present day evil and suffering that the world that we see all around us. That's because we're not looking to the future. Sometimes it's hard to remember that Jesus has already rescued us from those evil ones. As we're told in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus gave his life for our sins, just as God the Father had planned, in order to rescue us from the evil world in which we live. The kingdom of God is already, but not yet complete. Now, if you look at your bulletin insert, on the side it says, what does God want? We see today that our main focus is God is with his family forever. And the story today is that biblical story's exclamation point. The emphasis of why and what will happen as we move forward. The Bible doesn't condemn that we are perplexed or anxious about the evil that we suffer and observe in the world today. Instead, it's honest about it. And if you'll follow along in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25, it tells us our current condition. Yet we, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we as believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us, as a foretaste of that future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait for that eager hope for one day when God will give us the full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies that he has promised us. We were given the hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something that we don't have, we must wait patiently and confidently. 
We will obtain our resurrected bodies when Christ returns, destroys the remnant of evil that's still here on earth, and sets up and restores his global Eden. The kingdom of God will be in the fullness at that point. And today, our final portion of the story narrative, the series of messages that we're currently in, I want to focus on that amazing ending, the finalization of what God's kingdom will be like, the best that we can understand from Scripture. The restoration of the global Eden. I brought my trusty old globe just to give you an image. When Christ returns, instead of a small garden of Eden, it'll be a global Eden fully restored, fully as God had intended Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and extend that garden throughout the world. Every great epic has a memorial ending. Every great story that you read, what makes a great story is that epic ending. And it's no different with the biblical story. But if you're expecting to sit up in heaven playing harps on clouds and just sort of flitting around, I think you're going to be disappointed once you get there, if that's your expectations. We tend to process that final act of the Bible story in terms of what we will get. So, for example, we will have everlasting life, not death, and that's exciting in itself. But everlasting life really doesn't tell us too much other than the duration of our life, but not the quality of our life. Quality is an everlasting life that emerges more in our minds that we process that story of the end when God will restore that global Eden. In the book of Revelation, that last book of the Bible, and I read a little bit of it at the beginning today, the Bible completes this Edenic image in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. We see there that God is there. Heaven has returned to earth. Jesus is there. The tree of life is there as it was in the original Garden of Eden. And this Eden is actually better than the original Garden of Eden because it's a global Eden for all who are part of God's human family. At that point, evil has run its course because when Christ returns a second time, he will destroy all evil to set up God's kingdom because God's kingdom cannot have any evil in it. There's no rebellion waiting in that world. No one left that's part of that evil element that will pollute that world. Creation, therefore, as it's waiting currently, as with the pains of childbirth, will be fully restored to what it was originally intended to be, that Garden of Eden. Evil has run its course. There's no more disease or death anywhere in the plant, animal, or human experience. There's no more killing or violence. It's like nothing that we've ever experienced in that picture on that side of your bulletin insert. The verse at Romans 8.18, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed to us later. Now this Eden angle gets us closer to what the Bible emphasizes as the story's climax. Now the passage I read, which I have on the bulletin insert in Romans chapter 8, it helps to adjust our thinking to bring us to the absolute pinnacle of God's plan. And that is the revealing of the sons of God, the glory of the children of God. Yes, creation groans to be remade, to be restored back to what its original intent was. But that deliverance is linked to us as the human family of God being glorified. In other words, we are the end game that God, what God is doing in eternity. 
Our status as children permanently fit into his presence and is present to him forever. And that's at the forefront of the Bible story. Where we live for eternity is going to be glorious. The scenery, something we cannot imagine. But that doesn't even come close to what it will be like. The book of Revelation's final vision of the new Eden, and this point makes what I'm talking about in that global Eden. The final scene in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And that word disappeared, translated from the original language, has a connotation that it's been remade or restored back to its original intent. It goes on to say, and the sea was also gone. And many scratch their head, what, is there not going to be any, new, any sea on this new global Eden? Well, sea in the Old Testament specifically was a symbol of chaos. Chaos in the world were the Leviathan and the monsters because they were scared of the open sea at that point. So it's indicating here, based on the original translation, is there will be no more chaos in the world. And I saw the holy city like a new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now coming among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and will wipe every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. So in that last day, when Christ returns, establishes the global Eden, that new Jerusalem will ascend from heaven as a bride dressed for the wedding, come to restore global Eden. And like the original Garden of Eden, where God came to earth and dwelt among his men and women, the same way he'll restore the earth to his global Eden. It gives us an everlasting identity, the revealing of the sons of God, the glory of the children of God. And it's a way of saying that someday we will be transformed to be like Jesus. As the Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. And the same expression is the same concept is expressed in several other verses, like Romans 8, 29. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among his brothers and sisters. When we're fully restored with our resurrected bodies, we will be like Christ. We will be siblings, brothers and sisters of Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. But we are citizens of God's heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly awaiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak, mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control so when Christ returns and we're lifted up and given immortal bodies, everything in heaven and earth will be under his control. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3.18, so all of us, who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. The Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him when we are changed into His glorious image. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 53 through 58. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies will be transformed 
into immortal bodies. And I brought our two friends here today. This is me in my chainsaw outfit, filthy. I've washed them, but the filth just doesn't come out. This is our mortal bodies. As we're still here on earth, no matter what we do, we're still flawed in a way. But when Christ returns to establish the global Eden, he will give us a glorious body, like his body at the end of, after he was resurrected. Perfect, not constrained by time and space, no illness, no pains, no aging. We will be restored to a perfected body when Christ returns. So let me continue on in this passage in 1 Corinthians. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, the scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For the sin is the sting of death that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. And what is that telling us? When we're in our mortal bodies here on earth, whether we're retired, whether we are working, whether we're, no matter what God has for us, we are to do that work enthusiastically for the Lord because nothing we do as children of God is ever useless. It's part of building his kingdom. Even though we don't have our fully glorified bodies yet, we are still to work enthusiastically for the Lord. In one of my favorite passages on our final destiny, and the glorification is slightly more obscure, and it's a scene from the book of Hebrews, the Old Testament of the New Testament. And it's a book that we're going to study after our Easter messages in depth, the book of Hebrews. It's where Jesus introduces us to God and God to us. Jesus stands before God in the congregation within the unseen realm, those divine beings that we normally refer to as angels will be there, those heavenly sons of God in the heavenly court, those who have not turned their backs on God like some of the evil sons of God did. And he confesses boldly, Jesus Christ confesses boldly that he has no shame having us as his siblings in his family, and he says to God and the supernatural members of God's family in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, so now Jesus and the ones he makes holy, which are us, have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. For he said to God, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. And then he looks at the congregation within the unseen realm, the heavenly beings. He says, I will praise you among my assembled people, referring to us praising them among the assembled people. This is your ultimate destiny, becoming a permanent, legitimate member of God's family. In the end, you belong to God's family. And that's what he wanted from the very beginning. And that's the whole creation is yearning for him as in the, with the the pains of childbearing, just urging to have that new birth of creation. And he gives us an everlasting partnership. Have you ever had a conversation with someone about what we refer to as heaven will be like? That new global Eden, as I refer to it as? And I've heard a lot of people describe that well, it will be like a continuous worship service, an endless Q&A session with Jesus, or maybe a glorified church meet and greet. And for some of us who have introvert test, uh, traits in us, an endless meet and greet really doesn't sound too pleasant. 
While we could confer some things by imagining our life, what the perfected Eden will entail, the Bible really doesn't give us a whole lot of information on what we will experience. There's snippets here and there. Just like in the Old Testament, there were snippets about Jesus Christ coming as the Messiah, but they didn't see the whole mosaic that Christ was, the fulfillment of all things, the fulfillment of all promises, the fulfillment over death, the fulfillment of the sinful sons of God that had turned their backs on him. Moreover, what does it say about some of the duties that we'll have in heaven? Well, Revelation chapter 2, verse 26 tells us, To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. All the nations is referring to that global Eden where heaven comes down and is joined once again to the earthly creation that God has made, but in its perfected form. Then Revelation chapter 321, those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat on my father with my father on his throne. In their first Corinthians chapter six, verses two and three, don't you realize that someday we believers will judge the world? And since we are going to judge the world, can't you decide even on these little things among yourself? Don't you realize that we will judge angels? So you should surely be able to resolve ordinary disputes in life. So what do these phrases mean? They're not real clear to us with just a cursory understanding of the Bible. And we can start asking, who rules the nations now? Well, it's those fallen sons of God that were allotted the nations at Babel to rule the nations who are taking their place. In other words, the nations at this very moment are still somewhat, but not entirely, ruled by those evil sons of God. They have not been fully reclaimed by God yet. As we've noted, that as the expansion of God's kingdom grows, it's a gradual process that's already here, but not yet complete. And when that process has come to the end of days, the believers will judge those angels, those evil sons of God, have turned their backs on God by replacing them with a rule of authority over God's creation. We will rule the nations with Jesus as our king and as our brother. And whenever I speak about this idea, I inevitably get these questions, what task will we have? We want to know what we'll do in heaven. Will some believers have more authority than other believers? Will I be another believer's boss? How can we all be rulers? Do our good works here on earth dictate whom we're going to rule over in heaven? And these are all understandable questions for people who are living in an imperfect world. The flawed, damaged world that we live in taints our perspective that we experience. But the Bible doesn't portray our for final destiny as some sort of boss-employee relationship. Instead, it's a father-child relationship. We are part of God's family. We are God's children, and we work together alongside our siblings, both human and divine siblings. Think of it in a, a farm analogy, a family farm. Everybody in that family has to work together in order to make that farm successful. And it's not so much who's in charge of who, but everyone doing their duties in order to make that farm successful, and they have to work to do that. And the brother that we all look up to most is Jesus Christ. All of God's children have been made like Jesus at this point, the ultimate imager of God. 
The point is that when we rule in this new Eden, it's not about hierarchy. It's about a family partnership, such as the family farm. The need for a supervisory hierarchy disappears when all members of our family are glorified, when we're perfected, when we have our immortal bodies. And if you look at your other side of your bulletin insert today, we see that we have an everlasting identity and an everlasting partnership. That is the full kingdom of God when it's in its fullness. It's already here today, but not yet quite complete. To be honest, we can't conceive anything like this. We don't have the comprehension able to do that. We live in a corrupted world, but God wants us. He wants you to experience life with him in a way that it was intended to be from the very beginning. And someday we will, as the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, this is what the scriptures say, or means when they say, no eye has seen, no ears has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And that's actually a quote from Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4. And if you look at that picture that I've inserted here, in the pupil of that eye, the glory of the new restored Eden is something that we just cannot imagine with our mortal minds that we have today, but one day we will. And over these past six weeks, we've gone through an overview of what the Bible story is all about. It's an amazing story. And you're probably wondering, well, if this caps the story, if we're now in that new global Eden, Eden forever, what comes next? Because we still have three weeks in this series. There's some important concepts that I think will help us to grasp the image of where we fit within the story. Now, early in the story, I spoke about Abraham, and the Apostle Paul used Abraham as an example of believing loyalty in Romans chapter 4. Abraham believed and accepted God before God gave him the command of circumcision. He was already part of God's family before circumcision. And God says, to show that you are part of my family, I want you to circumcise all males. We see that that belief came before obedience. One essential thing is that faith that we have. Loyalty to that belief, to that God, is something that we'll talk about in our last two messages, and that's called discipleship. Belief and loyalty are two distinct things, but they're related but not interchangeable. The same is true about our salvation and discipleship. Now the phrase believing loyalty is our roadmap for these last three weeks in this series, our guide during the remaining of these messages. But let me just look at a snippet today. First, believing. Next week we're going to talk about the gospel. We'll talk about what it is and what it isn't. And we'll learn what it means that the gospel's content according to the Bible. It's important because believing the gospel is how we become members of God's family. It's how we're saved. Salvation is by faith. It's how God has provided salvation, the path for creating a way to join God's family. And that centers all of it on what Jesus did for us, not anything that we can do in return. And then comes loyalty. The final couple of chapters in this, or messages, we'll, we'll learn about discipleship. Disciple is a term that's used for follower. So if we're a disciple of Christ, we're a Christ follower. Being a disciple means that we follow him, that we're imitating him because he was the perfect imager of God. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. 
Now, Jesus lived in a way that showed that he loved God and that he was loyal to his father and his plan. And discipleship is how we show that we love Jesus and we love God. It's not about earning God's love. We cannot earn God's love. He provided his love. All we have to do is accept it. It's how we thank Jesus for accomplishing that plan to save us. It's not re replacing or supplementing that love for anything that we can do, but it's what Jesus did for our salvation. For us to try to do that ourselves would be impossible. It's how we show that we believe in what we, that God loved us is our salvation. And if you remember when we went through the book of James some 15 or 18 months ago, the title of those messages is Works is Faith in Action. James says, yes, show me your faith by your works. And lo believing loyalty is the same. Loyalty shows our belief. And as I said early, belief and loyalty are two related but distinct things. They are not interchangeable. The same is true for our salvation and discipleship. We are saved by the love of God when we accept him, but we show that we've been saved by loyally following his word. To show loyal, our loyalty to Savior is about being his disciple. Now, today's message, we see how God is with his family forever. It's just a glimpse of what eternity may be like. We don't have a lot to go by, but those glimpses help us to put at least a little bit of picture together because our minds cannot imagine what God has in store for us. But it's our responsibility through believing loyalty to be an imager of Christ as he was the imager of God the Father. And next week, we'll build that foundation of the gospel, that good news. And then the following two weeks, we'll look at what is discipleship and what do disciples do. So for next week, I'd like you, if you have an opportunity, to read Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, John chapter 14, verse 6, in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, to build that foundation of what that good news is all about. And that good news is what brings us belief in Christ. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for your love, your goodness, your mercy to us. We thank you that we do just get a very glimpse of what eternity will be like with you and will be in your family forever, Father, where our mortal bodies will be remade into our glorious immortal bodies as our Savior Christ did when he was resurrected from the dead. We look forward to that day, Father, but until then, let us be faithful. Let us be loyal to you. Let us, everything that we do, everything that we say, might be for building your kingdom, Father, as we know that anything we do for you is never useless. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward. 
Enjoy your journey and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.